Father, we just thank you for this morning and we just pray that you open our hearts and minds and just have us to hear what you have us to hear, but also to put into practice what we hear, not just to retain it. God, we do just want to lift up uh, Bill and Eric and, and the whole group there as they're ministering in Cambodia. We would just pray, Lord, that you work through them to share your good news, to help them, God, just to show the love of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we just lift up Bob this morning, continue to heal him and just watch over him, bring him back to strength and continue to give Jeannie strength, Lord, that, um, that she will not get worn down from everything that's going on. And Lord, we just pray you be with Connie as she goes through her dental work and pray that all goes smoothly, that you will just uh, give the doctors the wisdom to do the right things. And so, Lord, we lift this morning up to you, and we thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Last week we celebrated Easter, Easter Resurrection Sunday. It's the reason we meet. And so I thought, you know, that would be appropriate that we take a look at, at 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's viewpoint and what he would do. And just to give you a little background about the Corinthian church, we know that uh, Corinth was in uh, the southern part of Greece and uh, it was out on, wasn't necessarily an island, it's almost kind of like Coronado. And so... Um, this was a major city that prospered through trade and other things that went on. And so the ships that were going, they would go north and south. And so it was really dangerous out in the, out in the open waters to do this. And it was very time consuming. It would add a lot of days to everything that was going on. And so what they would do is they would go down through this area and there was a small isthmus so I don't think it was about four miles wide is what, what they say. Today, there's a canal through there. But then, but they would take their, their ships and they'd put them on skids and rollers and they would take them across this stretch of land, which would cut down time. But Corinth was right there and it was just a prime place for trade, for, you know, just the different things that were going on. And the other things is that there were, there were two games during those times. We all know about the Olympian games, but you don't know about the Isthmian games. And these games were basically athletic games and music competition. I found that kind of interesting. I mean, because you always know about Greece and, you know, with the Olympics and the, all the athletes and everything that went on. But this one was for sporting events and music. And the crown, the prize was a crown of dried wild celery. I mean, today they compete for gold, right? But that was the crown. So between the ships and the games, Corinth was a hotbed of activity. There was always something going on. And so it brought a lot of traffic into the area. And we know that Corinth was not, I don't know, it was... A lot of things going on in Corinth, which I'll talk about in a, mo a moment. But Corinth also had a temple to Aphrodite. Uh, she was a Greek goddess of love. And they usually had over a thousand priestesses. Now, that's just a nice way of saying they had a thousand prostitutes. Um, and so in Corinth, they were deep into worshiping Greek gods, worshiping idols, drunkenness, prostitution, 
just about anything you can think of. In fact, I found they had a saying in Corinth that said, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. (laughs) And I know you're all thinking about that place just about six hours from here. Um, where everybody says what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So, But Corinth was known for its corruption, its debauchery, its moral depravity. And so much so that you could be referred to as uh, a Corinthian was not a good thing. You'd be known for your immorality and for your drunken, drunkenness and your debauchery. You know, today we have words that, that get thrown around and, and we hear it. You know, unfortunately, through the politics and everything, but we hear the the word redneck. Somebody says redneck. That probably brings a certain thought to your mind. Uh, one that I, you know, kind of think negatively of is when somebody calls someone a city slicker, and I view that as somebody that's uppity, or that they think they're better than others, or they can't. To me, they can't be trusted, and that's you know. Just city slicker. But there's words out there that, that come to mind that would be the same thing. And if somebody called you a Corinthian or you were Corinthianizing, that basically was not a very good, you were not being thought very well of. And so, um, tragically, some of the worst sins were still going on in Corinth. Then we're creeping into the church. Because you can imagine, can you imagine planning a church in somewhere like Corinth? And making an impact. But Paul did. And that did happen. Um, But there were a lot of sins still creeping in. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, it says, Or do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is in the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And so, as Paul was writing mainly to change the behavior, he was, he was bringing to the forefront what was going on in their lives. And his whole premise was he wanted, his goal was to restore those that had fallen away. And so he wanted the change in their heart. And we've talked about this before. And he wanted them to turn back to sound teaching and the true gospel. That should always be the goal to restore. He wanted to remind them that they, where they were and where they are now. And that should always be our goal, even within the church. That if somebody stumbles or somebody falls, our first goal is to restore. And depending on their response... You know, if they don't respond appropriately in the scripture, it does give us the process for church discipline. But our first goal, we go to that person, we talk to them, and our goal is to restore them. So one of the things we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Bill talked about it last week with presenting the gospel and the resurrection. Uh, We're also going to talk about the resurrection again this Sunday. And so that's where we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 and 2, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. And if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. So Paul's reminding them of the gospel that they've received and how they've taken, taken the stand on that gospel. It's the same gospel we stand on today. 
And so they've been, you know, delivered from sin's power. They've been, you know, with everything that's going on in Corinth. You have people who are standing up and professing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so now they're brothers in Christ and part of the church. In verse 2, by this gospel you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you believed in in vain. Now, there's some out there who've taken this verse and try to say that, you know, this verse is you can lose your salvation. But I'd say that they were never true believers. If If they've fallen away and just totally turned their back completely on Jesus Christ, they basically were never saved. And this verse can be better translated this way. Um, says, I would say they were never true believers. If you hold fast what I preach to you, unless your faith is worthless or unless you believed without effect. So really, they claimed they believed, but they really didn't. And so their faith was worthless. In 1 Corinthians eleven two, we read, and Paul references holding to the right teachings It says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. So again, Paul reminds them of the gospel that they've received and he wants them to stay true to it. To now reject the gospel would prove that you never knew Christ. It was a sham. It wasn't real. They had not really held firmly to what they had been taught. They basically were just going through the motions. Jesus speaks of this many times. He talks about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He spoke of many kinds of fish being caught, the good ones kept and the bad ones thrown away in Matthew 13. Uh, the virgins without, with, without oil for their lamps and service who, servants who wasted their talents. And so were cast out. And that's in Matthew 25. But he also warned of the paths that seem right, but that lead to destruction in Matthew 7. And um, heard this from a friend of mine quite a few years ago, and it it always stuck with me. And I think it's something we have to be very careful with when we're raising raising our kids in the church. That they hear all the stories, they hear everything that's going on, but they never really put their faith in Jesus Christ. They go through the motions. They see what their parents do. They see, you know, what goes on in church and they mimic it, but they've never given their heart to Jesus Christ. And a friend of ours termed that churchianity. And he said, that's what they, you have to be careful of, is that when you, you know, pray with your kids and talk to your kids, you should be letting them know what the true gospel is so that then they can make a decision Do I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ? And so that term churchianity always struck with me. And um, years ago when we were in youth work and and stuff, that always stuck with me because that is something I wanted to make sure that the young people understand. You don't go to heaven because your parents are saved. You go to heaven because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's that plain and simple. So right after talking about the paths in Matthew 7, he says, watch out for the false prophets. He says, they come in like sheep's clothing, and inwardly they're ferocious wolves. 
And we all know what wolves do, especially if you live in a ranch or rural areas or something, you know, between the coyotes and the wolves, it could be pretty, pretty hazardous to your, to your livestock. So Paul's reminding them to hold firmly to the teachings that he gave them. And that's what we need to make sure we do. Uh, in Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, it says, Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. And then it says, but. And I know normally, you know, when you're talking to somebody and they put a but in there, it's negative. You know, I might say, you know, that Buzz, he is a great guy, but. And I mean, your mind is going right to something negative, right? Well, not in this verse. It says, but we are not of those who shrink back and destroyed, but of those who believed and are saved. And that is, that's exciting. So in the opening verses, we get a strong testimony to the power of the gospel. The Corinthian church continues despite extortion, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, liars, idolaters, pagan worship, and even politicians. Actually, I just threw that one in. Um, (laughs) Doesn't really say that in scriptures. (laughs) Any other worldly lust you can think of? Uh, Corinth was, was a tough place. So this is the power of the gospel to overcome all this and have true believers in a society that was so decadent that no one wanted to be referred to as Corinthians. So I know today we look around and we can't believe some of the things that we see. I mean, just look at just basic television. I mean, there's enough sex and foul language and just basic cable. That's just basic cable. What is that like? Channel 5 and 6 and 10 and 8, you know, just the basic cable. But you get into the cable channels, you know, where, you know, you have all of these new cable channels. And to me, it's just basically soft porn. I mean, it really is. Um, In fact, I was even, I read an article, I don't know if you know Game of Thrones, one that's on one of the cable channels. I've never seen the show. Um, but I read an article about it, and they said that many of the actresses that they hire for the parts are previous porn stars because of the sex scenes that they wanted displayed through this. So um, it just kind of shows you, you know, culture and, and where it's going. And what's really sad is uh, I was just reading recently as I was, I was praying over this message, and everybody knows about virtual reality. You know, it's supposed to be gate for, great for the gaming industry, right? Well, now they're coming out with virtual reality porn, and it'll be more addictive than regular porn. Is what, and um, Opal even spoke to that when she spoke here last, uh, back in uh, February. But I pulled this little excerpt out from a gaming industry magazine, and it says, The devices that provide culturally acceptable virtual reality experiences that you can tell everyone you bought your device for gaming and live sports that also provides clear access to pornography will see the largest mass cultural adoption of their hardware and related content platforms Pornhub said it is giving away 10,000 virtual reality headsets to to celebrate the launch 
The prediction is that over 10 million people will be watching virtual reality porn by the end of this year. Just like Corinthians had to continue, and this is I added, just like Corinthians had to continue to hold firmly to the teachings, so must we. They might look a little bit different, but a lot of the sins and the things that the Corinthians were running up against are the same things that we run up against today. You know, the devil just disguises it a little bit differently, but it's all the same. You know, we see sex trafficking, modern-day slavery, crooked politicians, scams, ripping off seniors, being defrauded left and right in issues over bathrooms and marriage. As bad as it is, it's continued for years. It just has a different face to it. But there's always those that hold firmly to the word that is being preached. It's not believed in vain. I use this quote Wednesday night. You could tell I was studying, but it's from A.W. Tozier. Uh, This is what he says about rejecting Christ and the resurrection. I do not believe there is anybody that ever rejects Jesus Christ on philosophical grounds. The man who continues in his rejection of Christ has a pet sin somewhere he's in love with. He rejects Jesus on moral grounds and then hides behind false philosophy. As you can be talking with someone and they'll say, do you really believe that creation story? Do you really believe Adam and Eve were actual human beings back then? Uh, What about that, that flood? Noah building that huge boat. Do you really believe that? And so basically they try to take the conversation off track when really they need to come to terms with their sin and especially the pet sin. So, you know, they'll try and derail it. But all you need to do is bring it back. So some Corinthians were being taken in by all of this. But Paul was reminding them of Christ and his resurrection. And they needed to hold fast to those teachings. On uh, Monday nights, we've been studying First and Second Kings. And, you know, even in the northern kingdom, as bad as it was, because and they could probably recite this because I say it over and over, there were no... Good kings in the northern kingdom. And so, um, and I mean, the northern kingdom was just steeped in Baal worship. I mean, they were, it was just, they were so far from God. But you know, there were people there who believed still in the one true God. We think of the widow and her son um, that helped um, feed um, Elijah. And then we think about Obadiah, who, not, not the prophet Obadiah, but Obadiah, who was a servant to the king Ahab. And they, he hid prophets. He hid the God's prophets. And if he'd been found out, Ahab would have killed him. And so there are people in midst of all of this that are a bright, shining light to the one true God. And that's a testimony to you sitting here today. Is that in, in today's culture, we're that shining light. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now we can say hallelujah. I mean, that is... That is fabulous. Raised on the third day. And this is the hope that if Christ be raised, so shall we. So shall we. 
just want to give you a little information about a couple of other religious religions out there. I mean, here we can rejoice and say, our Savior is risen. But here's what they say about their religious icon. Here's what a follower of Buddha wrote about their religious leader. When Buddha died, it was that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains. Wow, that gives you a lot of hope, doesn't it? Or Mohammed, he died in Medina on June 8th, 632 AD at the age of 61. His tomb is visited by nearly tens of thousands every year. But they come to mourn his death, not to celebrate his resurrection. Yet in the church of Jesus Christ, in the Christ that we believe in, we come and we celebrate his resurrection. We did that last week. And actually we celebrate that every time someone gets baptized. Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, we celebrate that every time someone is baptized. So he's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that would have most likely been the Old Testament because that's what Paul would have been familiar with. New Testament wasn't available yet. And remember, Paul was a student in the Old Testament and he was under the rabbi Gamaliel. So he would have understood the Old Testament thoroughly. And the Old Testament speaks and alludes to the resurrection. I don't know. In fact, I had a... uh, in fact, we just saw him this, this last week, but it's a Bible teacher that, that I had. And he always said, when you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. He's there. He says, no matter what book you read, look for Jesus. In Psalm 16, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In Genesis 22, we know about Abraham almost offering his son, you know, based on what God told him to do. But God told him, you will be a father of many nations. So Abraham had faith that God knew what to do. We look at Psalm 22. Or Isaiah 53 and Hosea 6.2. Paul would have known these scriptures well. He would have used these scriptures when speaking and teaching. Especially in the synagogues. Because it always said when they went into a town, they went to the synagogue first. But he would have known these scriptures backwards and forwards. It says he was really a very, very good student. Jesus even used an example of Jonah. And talking about in Matthew 12. So the Corinthians, even the Corinthians' own testimony to their faith, with everything that they were up against, with the debauchery and the idol worship and everything that was going on, they could testify on their own. Their faith was in Jesus Christ. And then now they had the Old Testament scriptures, which Paul was telling them about. And as we'll see in the next few verses, there's a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. So... And eyewitnesses, you know, there's a lot of debate in courts whether eyewitnesses are good or bad. Um, I always think back, you know, when you catch your kids doing something wrong. They always want to blame it on the other one. I mean, you're sitting there and you're watching what they do. And it's like, why did you do that? She did it. Okay, now you know. 
So, so you become an eyewitness to what they did, and you have to discipline the right one. So, so in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 7, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers at the same time, most of who are still living, so some, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So remember, under the law, in Deuteronomy 2 or 3, on witnesses, it said you had to have at least two or three witnesses. Uh, and so here, we see he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500. Then he, and so it sounds like to me, that's a few more than two or three. I mean, you know, right there, you've got 513 people so far that they've mentioned that he's appeared to. So they would have their own testimony. They would have the Old Testament. They would have all these witnesses that have basically testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so... There is no reason not to believe that Christ had not risen from the dead. And I always wondered, why did Jesus reveal himself to Peter first? You know, we don't really know. Scripture doesn't really tell us. It says, Peter was not the first to see him, but he was the first to reveal himself to Peter as to who he was. And I always think back about, you know, Peter was the one that denied Christ three times. I mean, he was really gung-ho when, you know, he was under Jesus' teaching and stuff. But Jesus even told him, he says, Peter, you will deny me three times. And he did. Can you imagine? I mean, just, I just can't even imagine how Peter felt, especially after he ended up being crucified. But the first person that God reveals who he is to is Peter. And I think that just really, to me, had to excite Peter. To say, you know what? This truly is a loving God. You know, Jesus Christ basically forgiven him for what he had done. And so this would have been a big boost for Peter. And it must have been because look what he went on to do with with writing scripture and with going out and planting churches. So... And witnessing to people. I mean, even, you know, he'd been told not to preach. And they threw him in jail. And he gets out of jail and he goes and preaches again. So it says he appeared to the twelve. And so the apostles really were the foundation of the church. And Jesus Christ, based on their teachings, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of that church. And that's us. We see in Ephesians 2.20. Actually, 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's peoples and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives and his spirit. So all the apostles saw Jesus in the resurrection. They were honest and good and reliable witnesses to the most important day, at least in my life, in history. 
I mean, there's a lot that's gone on in history, but I would think for us that would have to be a very important day. So now that that wasn't even enough, we have 500 that have come to see Jesus and who he is from being resurrected. And then to James, and that was most likely Jesus' half-brother. And then to all the apostles. And I won't get into a debate about all the apostles and how many they were. Bill's covered that in previous messages, so we'll... Leave it there, because we could be here another hour if we got into that. So we're going So in First Corinthians 15, verse eight, at last, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. He's given it all to God. That was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Paul mentions himself last and calls it abnormally born or untimely born. But if you think about it, Paul not only saw Christ post-resurrection, but he saw him post-ascension. We remember in Acts 1-9 when Christ ascended and later on on the road when he, was, uh, when he saw Christ. So he appeared to Paul and we see that in Acts 9-10 in verses 23, uh, chapter 23 verse 11 and 2 Corinthians 12-7. All indicating the appearance of Jesus to Paul. So Paul referred to himself as the least of the apostles and did not deserve to be called an apostle because of what he had basically done prior to his faith in Christ Jesus. He said he had persecuted the church. And we see this in Acts. It's actually, in, uh, see a good example, you see in Acts 7 with the stoning of Stephen. And um, Paul actually watched this whole thing go down and he actually People took their cloaks off and stuff and put them at his feet. And he watched their cloaks while they stoned Stephen. Um, in fact, Stephen, I don't know how many of us would do this today. But I, I have to say, he probably, probably caught them off guard a little bit. Because he goes through this long dissertation. And then when he gets done with, this is basically what he tells them. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. So they took Stephen out and they stoned him and Paul watched. And from there we know that the church was scattered. But that Paul was very active in pursuing and making sure that these people were either put in jail or executed. Because of, because of Jesus Christ. Paul recounts in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He was very zealous. He was going after him. I mean, Can you imagine somebody hounding you like that for your faith? Basically, if he caught you, he was going to put you in jail or he was going to have you executed. That's how zealous he was for persecuting the church and those believers of Jesus Christ. But we know things change. 
I mean, he even says here, he says in verse 10, he says, I worked harder than all, yet not I, but the grace of God. He gives the recognition and the glory. So Paul comes to know Christ as his Savior. He's as zealous for the one true God. Here on one side, he thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. He was a devout Jew, and he wanted to do the right thing, and he thought he was doing that. But he'd come to find out he wasn't. So Paul went from an external religion to a persecutor of, and a persecutor of the church and an enemy of God to a defender. So as much as he persecuted the church, now he is zealous for the church. I mean, look at the epistles that he wrote. Look at the churches that he planted. You know, and so I look at this and when I read about this and you really look at Paul's life and I thought, you know, if God can take Paul and use him, He can use every one of you. There is some area in your life that God wants to use that you can impact others for Jesus Christ. All you have to do is surrender it to him. 1 Corinthians 15, Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So they all preached and all taught a common message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any other gospel preached would be a false gospel. We teach this so you know the truth. When you hear, and when you hear anything different, you can identify it as fake or as false. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or if anybody adds anything. Paul in his letters warns over and over and over and over against false teachers. And we need to be aware of that in the church today that there are people who will come in and want to teach false gospel we need to study his word we need to pray we need to be with individuals that can hold us accountable in our life that we stay true to the to the one true gospel so my goal is to always hopefully provide you the truth from God's word. And if you hear something that doesn't sound right, I need to know. So that if I'm wrong, I'll admit it. So now let's look at the second part, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 19. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for the life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So Paul spends the first 11 verses talking about the witnesses to the resurrection. But some in Corinth accepted the resurrection of Christ but they didn't accept the resurrection of themselves and so, or the believer. So he's telling them, you can't have one without the other. But all of that that he said in there, that's basically what he said. You can't have one without the other. If Christ was raised, we will be raised. If, 
if we're not raised, Christ wasn't raised either. So again, he shows them that you can see the continual influence on on culture in the church. And we've talked about Corinth earlier and the amount of idol worship and pagan worship. Back then, there's just as you know many thoughts on what happened to someone who dies as there are today. I'm sure if you go out and talk to people, one of the favorite pastimes my wife and I like to do in the springtime is we like to go to Earth Day at Balboa Park. You ever been to Earth Day at Balboa Park? You can run into just about every religion that you can think of. And it is so interesting to talk to them um, and just hear what they, what they think. Um, you know, back then, uh, some believed in soul sleep. It says while a body dies, the soul or the spirit rests. Materialists believe that once you're dead, you're dead. Even some Jews taught there was no resurrection. And this is what the Sadducees taught. They, <clears throat> they were at odds with the Pharisees, and we, we see that in the Gospels. So the Sadducees did not believe in the res- resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Old joke, I know. Even, but it's true. I mean, what a perfect name for them. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they should be sad. So even today, let's look at some of the false religions that are out there today. Death in Hinduism is very spiritual and it strongly believes in the rebirth and the reincarnation of souls. So according to Hinduism, death is regarded as a natural process in the existence of soul as a separate entity. When a person dies, the soul travels for some time to another world and finally returns again to the earth to continue its journey. In Buddhism, there's a lot, there, a lot has been said about the importance of death. It was awareness of death that prompted Lord Buddha to explore the truth behind worldly concerns and pleasures. After, <clears throat> after a search, Lord Buddha finally came to the conclusion that death is inevitable for a person who thinks about worldly pleasures and attitudes. Today, Buddhists look at death as taking a break from this materialistic world. Buddhist people do not think death as a, Buddhist people do not think death as a continuation of the soul, but consider it as an awakening. And in the 8th century, there was a mystical sect, and this, and this one gets really convoluted, mystical sect of Islam merged with mystical traditions of the Greeks, the Buddhists, the Hindus, and traditional Islamic faith. They're called Suf- Sufism. The concepts found in Sufism can be found in a great many near-death experiences which have been reported. And the Sufi masters teach that after death, a person judges himself. Therefore, bringing about his own heaven or hell. Wow, wouldn't you like that? I've been great. I've been good. I'm going to be in heaven. I mean, I get to decide, right? Where does this come from? So, if I'm judging myself, I'm going to be looking at everything in a positive light, not looking at anything on the negative side. And then this one I really liked. Spiritualism or spiritism says that all people and animals that have been loved, they had vibration, they had good vibrations raised. You know, just think about your pets. Think about how people just love their pets today. And so they continue to live after physical death. So on crossing over, we take three things, etheric or spirit body, um, all memories and our character. And so on crossing over, we go to a realm that will accommodate the vibrations we accumulated from all the thoughts and actions of a lifetime. 
So, if you're a decent person and you had good vibrations, you go to the third realm. But those who willfully cruel and consistently selfish go to a dark, darker, unpleasant astral. And so as I read this, I thought that must have been where the Beach Boys got their song, right? <laughs> so now back to the point of the resurrection. Paul was teaching the resurrection. And we know Paul was a great student of the Old Testament, just based on, on the rabbi he had for a teacher in his own testimony. And in Job 19.26, it says, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns from within. Job knew. He knew he would see God. Psalm 17, 15. And in and I in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And in Daniel 12, 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So Paul, being this student, he would bring all that in. Here he saw Christ. He basically had become so zealous for Jesus Christ, I mean, and for the church. As, as much as he was as zealous in persecuting the church, he was now as zealous as building up the church and reaching people for Jesus Christ. And as we go through and we read this, and we're talking about the verses 13 through 19, there are consequences. It says there's serious consequences for not believing in the resurrection. And this is kind of what the outline looks like. Number one is Christ would not be risen. There would be no hope if we follow the line of thinking that we saw in 1 Corinthians that Paul's talking about. Preaching of the gospel would be meaningless. It would be a waste of time. That we would study the scripture and, and want, to, want to share it with others. Faith in Christ would be worthless. Faith in Christ would be worthless. Have you ever had something that you just, or someone that you just trusted in and believed in, and then they let you down and found out they weren't quite what you thought they were? All witnesses to and all preachers of the resurrection would be liars. Basically con men. Remember, people gave money and sold possessions, did all these things for Christ. But all that would be would be few individuals in private gain. This is really sad. We'd still be in our sins. We would still be slaves to sin. All former believers who had eternally perished, that would be a reason for us to continue to grieve. Because it's over. Christians would be the most pitiable people on the earth. The pagans would be right. Christians would have believed in foolishness. So what about today? You know, why would we be here on Sunday? There would be no reason. Such a beautiful day out, we might as well go to the beach, right? No reason to celebrate last Easter. There is no resurrected Christ and so on. And we know works don't save us. That we're saved by grace. But, you know, through scripture we learn that we're to take care of one another. That we're to share what we have. But what would be the purpose if Christ isn't risen? There would be no hope there. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 later on in a few verses, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he's quoting from Isaiah 22. Saying there's no resurrection tears at the very heart 
of the gospel and what we believe. But this is exciting because we're going to go into verses 20 and 22. It says, But Christ indeed has risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ has been raised, as talked about in the very few first verses in this chapter. Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, and knowing that after him we would also be raised. You know, when the Israelites, when they harvested their crops, their first fruits had to be brought as an offering. And, and we see this in Leviticus 23.10. And so the full harvest could not be completed until after the first fruits had been offered. So here we see that Christ becomes the first fruits. And then after that, we are the harvest. You know, Scripture does talk about other people that were raised from the dead. We know about Lazarus. But one thing you have to remember is those people who did come back to life died again. Christ did not die again. And so that's why we can put our hope in him. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And I don't want you to confuse the two alls in there because we all did basically it's a terrible disease, sin. We got that from Adam. But only those that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will live forever in heaven. We don't want to apply the all to everybody. And there actually was a false teacher out there who's not in the ministry anymore, thank goodness. But he actually kind of taught that, that that all applied to everyone. That if sin brought, if Adam brought sin into the world and we all have a sin nature, but that Christ died, he died for all of us universally. And that's not true. We know that. Scripture tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 15:23 but each in his own turn Christ the first fruits then when he comes those who belong to him. So we just celebrated Easter Resurrection Sunday. We took a closer look from Paul on the resurrection and believing the resurrection and the many witnesses that testified to the resurrection. So what about us? And I always look at John 20:24 20, through 29. Someone once asked me what's one of your favorite verses and I always go to this and it's doubting Thomas says, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see, your, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And this is, this is the best part. This is what Jesus told him. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And he's talking about us, that we, we have not seen physically jesus but we do believe and it reminds me as friends of ours do uh they used to sing this song and it's called believing is seeing and it kind of goes like this they say seeing is believing and i don't disagree believing is always easiest in things that we can see but just because god can't be seen doesn't mean he isn't there no one's ever seen the wind but it's evidence it's everywhere 
Believing is seeing by faith. And the reason I see is because I believe. Believing is staying when others are straying from the truth they received. Believing is knowing that Jesus is going to work through all that stands in the way. And he's the reason that I can say believing is seeing. To walk by faith and not by sight is hard for me to do. I want to see what lies ahead before I step through. But even though I feel uneasy, I'm convinced his way is best. He's never failed to keep his word. His love will stand through every test. And that's from Manna Music, if some of you are old enough to remember that. So my hope is that everyone here today knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you don't, you can take that step. Um, we've got, you know, Dustin's here and Steve's here and other guys and, and ladies that would be willing to pray with you. Um, but I would want you to leave here today not knowing Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. There's, there's Peter. There's the apostles. There's the 500. There's God's word that gives testimony that Jesus Christ is alive and was resurrected. And that's the hope that we can put in that Paul talks about. That is the hope that we have a resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we just thank you for your son Jesus Christ and what he means to us. And we thank you that there was a resurrection. God, just the consequences that there weren't. But no, God, we can put faith in your word. And as Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen but yet believe. And so, Lord, we do put our trust in you. And we thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.